You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 24 of the Crisis in the Church series. We'll continue our discussion of the Novus Ordo Mass today with Father Paul Isaac Franks, Professor of Theology at St. Mary's College. Last time, we looked at the New Mass's ecumenical intent. Today, we'll see how the New Mass is a direct expression of the new theology that was condemned by Pope Pius XII. But this problematic theology came back in full force during the Second Vatican Council, and when the New Mass was developed, it drew on this new theology putting aside much of the traditional theology contained in the church's magisterium. Although it's not totally necessary, it may be helpful to go back and watch episode 16 if you haven't already, where Father Bormeau took us through the new theology itself. This will help you understand the inherent problems in this development of the church's teaching. And if you'd like to see all our previous 23 episodes, please visit sspxpodcast.com crisis. Now, we'll turn to our conversation with Father Franks. Welcome to the next episode on the Crisis in the Church series, and we're welcoming Father Paul Isaac Franks from St. Mary's. Hello, Father. How is springtime in St. Mary's going? It's going really well. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Uh, So today we are talking about uh, the New Mass. We are continuing with our second episode on the New Mass itself. In the previous episode, um, we were talking with Father Ruder. Uh, and, and Father Ruder gave us an introduction on the New Mass and the inherent problems in it. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the New Mass and the New Theology. Now, we've already talked, Father Franks, with uh, with Father Bormeau about the New Theology, so we do have a little bit of uh, background here, but the New Theology, is this a, a whole new set of theological ideas that are infused in the Mass, or does the Mass inform this New Theology, or where do we start with this, Father? So... New theology is a very, very broad umbrella okay. that covers all sorts of different things that a theologian, and especially a historian of 20th century theology, would want to pick apart and separate. So it's not a monolith by any means. What we're talking about specifically today is going to be one particular new theological attitude to sin to the redemption and also to the way that liturgy and sacraments work although i won't talk about that very much and how that particular theory which is um we can sum up in the phrase the paschal mystery how that particular theory influenced the reformers who made the new mass and finds an expression in the new mass so that the new mass in my claim is going to be an embodiment of a new way of thinking about what happened on the cross and what saved us and how that is present in the liturgy, a way that is quite other to the traditional sense that was defined at the Council of Trent. So when you say that this Paschal mystery, um, this is a new phrase that has come about with this new theology, in a sense, or is it or is it more of a, a, a new emphasis on this one aspect? The phrase Paschal Mystery is itself ancient and found in various places, well, in a few places, in ancient sacramentaries, ancient liturgical books. But in the hands of new theologians from 30s, 40s, 40s, 50s, 60s, it takes on a very special and unique sense and not the sense that it 
it would have held traditionally. So usually when we see Paschal Mystery, in fact, what you don't see is, is Paschal Mystery. You see Paschal Mysteries. And ah. mysteries in the sense of, of sacraments. So may these okay. Paschal Mysteries that we've received refresh us, O Lord, and so on. And that kind of formulation is common um, in, in Catholic liturgy, going way back. But under this one expression, Paschal Mystery, is a, a very precise formula. It's a, a kind of open-ended formula that has a very precise set of ideas behind it that contain a, a new way of thinking about the acts that saved us, the acts of Christ, and um, a new way of thinking how, about how those are present in the liturgy. And so this, generally speaking, is attributed to Dom Odo Cassel. Dom Cassel was one of the uh, big liturgical, big figures of the liturgical movement. And he's credited with this reconceiving of the Mass. So I just want to start off with a quote from Monsignor Gamba. If you know Monsignor Klaus Gamba, has some interesting assessments of the new liturgy. And I'm just going to give you three quotes from him that I think start us off in the right direction as far as this second line of attack against the new Mass. Because theologically we will have two critiques of the new Mass. The first one is easier to see. The second one is more complicated to see because it's more involved. The first line of attack against the new Mass is it is an ecumenical rite of Mass. It is a Protestantized Mass. It's a Mass altered to remove every stumbling block that could cause this shadow of displeasure to the separated brethren. So they took out, you know, those elements that Father Root to talk about. They took out minimized, um, rendered ambiguous, downplayed, de-emphasized in other words, cast into the into the shadows. Okay. Um, those those explicitly Catholic elements. The second line of attack against the new mass that a, a theologian, traditionalist theologian, will take is not only is an embodiment of ecumenism; it's an embodiment of the new theology, and in a way which is at odds with the church's doctrinal tradition, and okay. therefore dangerous. In fact, the the polemical way of saying that, which may not be taken for granted. It's an expression of neo-modernism. <laughs> okay. That's how our... All right, so, so this second uh, line of attack uh, that traditionalists would have, this is, this is what we're talking about today, this, this idea that the new theology uh, is imbued in this new mass. Yes, that's right. Okay. So All right. the key text for this book is going to be the problem of the liturgical reform by SSPX priests that analyzes this whole theology. It's... It's crunchy, and um, it's not easy for a non-theologian to read. I'm going to okay. do my best to break down a section of that book into more um, palatable terms. Okay. But before that, I'll just we'll hear from Monsignor Gamba. Quote, Much more radical than any liturgical changes introduced by Luther, at least as far as the rite was concerned, was the reorganization of our own liturgy. Above all, the fundamental changes that were made in the liturgy of the Mass. One thing is certain, the new theology was a major force behind the liturgical reforms. And he talks about, you know, the shifting of emphasis in the new Mass to 
to that of being a communal meal, deliberate de-emphasizing of the purpose and function of the Mass as a sacrifice, which Father Ruta already talked about. The Institutio Generalis deliberately avoids using the word sacrifice. It's mentioned only in passing. And a further quote, Obviously the Reformers wanted a completely new liturgy, a liturgy that differed from the traditional one in spirit as well as in form. Liturgy and faith are interdependent. That's why a new rite was created, a rite that in many ways reflects the bias of the new theology. The traditional liturgy simply could not be allowed to exist in its traditional form because it was permeated with the truths of the traditional faith. The real destruction of the traditional mass of the Roman rite with a history of more than ten of a thousand years is the wholesale destruction of the faith on which it was based. So for Monsignor Gambo, who was you know, a big fan of, of a Joseph Ratzinger, a big fan, fan of, of Cardinal Ratzinger as a theologian, in that sense, at least not a traditionalist as we would normally think of it, not a traditionalist sure. in the SSPX sense of traditionalist. And this also is acknowledged by Monsignor Joseph Lengling, who was one of the concilium that was responsible for making the new mass. This is what he says. In the 1969 general instruction of the Missal, an ecumenically orientated sacramental theology for the celebration of mass emerged. Maybe Father Ruta gave you this quote, but I want to give you the end of it. A theology already self-evident in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, number 47, and in, and in Paul VI's 1967 Instruction on the Eucharist. Despite the new 1970 edition, forced by reactionary attacks, but which avoided the worst, thanks to the cleverness of the revisers, how they managed to keep their agenda, even though the Conservatives tried to block them, it leads us out of the dead end of the post-Tridentine theories of sacrifice, in line with the theories of Odo Cassell, and corresponds to the agreement marked out in many of last year's interconfessional documents. So it makes perfect sense that a, a thorough reconception of the Mass would go hand in hand with a thorough reconception of the event which the Mass makes present, although in what sense will be at issue, but the event which the Mass represents, the sacrifice of Calvary. We already know and we've already noted that Protestants reject the idea of the Mass as a propitiatory sacrifice, a sacrifice that makes up for sin, because they say the cross itself was the propitiatory sacrifice. That's sufficient. If you add anything else to it, you're taking away from the cross, you're derogating from the cross. The modernists, though, are going to go even further... They're not even that comfortable with the idea that the cross itself was a propitiatory sacrifice. And so they're going to be happy with the idea that what happened on the cross is made present in the Mass. But they're still going to say it's not a, propit a sacrifice of propitiation because that's not what was going on on the cross. Oof. So this is, this is the theology that they describe as the Paschal Mystery. And you've heard this famous quote from uh, John Paul II. The first principle behind the reform of the liturgy is the actualization of the paschal mystery of Christ in the church's liturgy. Another quote from 
inter-ecumenici. First of all, however, it's essential that everyone be persuaded that the scope of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy is not merely limited to the changing of liturgical rites and texts. Rather, its aim is to foster the formation of the faithful and that pastoral activity of which the liturgy is the summit and the source. The changes in the liturgy, which have already been introduced or which will be introduced later, have this same end in view. The thrust of pastoral activity, which is centred on the liturgy, is to give expression to the paschal mystery in people's lives. That's 1964 inter-ecumenici. So this whole idea of the paschal mystery, it's a a formula for them which covers a set of of ideas. Let's have a look then, a little look at, at what do they mean by that. And it's essentially, it's a new way of conceiving the redemption. A new way which... Um, they say it's necessary to update the way we talk about this because the way we talk about it is a real turnoff and it, modern man doesn't want to hear that he's a sinner and that he's bad and we're all neurotic enough as it is. And so um, we need to place the emphasis in a positive place. So that's what they've tried to do. They've tried to get away from the old negative theology and replace it with a new happy positive theology. But in the process, they end up falsifying the relations between man and God and destroying the faith of the Council of Trent. So this is kind of a problem here. Right, um, right. So this is actually, you know, the, we're familiar with our classic Catholic view of the redemption. It does contain some negative elements, but that's because it's real. And there has been a fall of man and everything's not A-OK, you know. Um, and it can certainly... It's all a work of the charity of the Sacred Heart at the end of the day, but still we don't deny that we're sinners we need saved. So the classic idea of the, the redemption emphasizes we are redeemed, bought back by the payment of the blood of Christ, who satisfies the debt of justice that was incurred by man's sin, by man's failure to give to Almighty God the honor and glory and obedience and reverence that was his due. And therefore, man in justice has to correspond with his own salvation, has to offer up sacrifices to repair the temporal satisfaction due to sin so he doesn't have to pay them in purgatory. Traditional theology will emphasize, traditional devotion will emphasize even the pains of the suffering of Christ in his passion, not in order to crush men and make them feel um, neurotic and, and terrible in itself, but because this is the extent to which the charity of God has gone for us. He emptied himself. We see in it only the the work of God's love, but love satisfying the justice of God. A sacrifice at the end of the day which pays for the sins of men. A propitiatory sacrifice. And for the new theologians writing in the 50s, writing in the 60s, this whole old Catholic package is already too much. This is a quote from Monsignor Roguet, who was again a member of the Concilium that made the new Mass. It's an extended quotation, but you need to hear it, because this shows you what they were thinking. Redemption takes the form of a problem to be solved, he says. How can an infinite offence be atoned for? How can one person make up for all? How can somebody who's innocent pay for somebody who's guilty? It's unfortunate that these are the terms in which the redemption is presented to many of our contemporaries. Some are scandalised in their sense of justice and think that such a redemption is an unanswerable objection to the goodness of God. If God were truly a father, 
Would he be so exacting in his accounts? Would he take out his anger on his beloved son? In the theology of the Paschal Mystery, one does not meet with such pitfalls. Our salvation now appears to be wrought by a free, vital, and purely voluntary initiative coming entirely from God's merciful love. Okay, nice. Sounds very stirring, but the problem is when he says wrought entirely by God's merciful love, what he really means is wrought entirely by God's merciful love, not the charity of Christ satisfying justice, but the charity of Christ doing everything because there's no problem in justice in the first place. I mean, what he's saying here is a complete rejection of the tradition, not a complete rejection, but a fairly large rejection of the traditional teaching on what the redemption is and how it was wrong. It's a complete reconception of the redemption, which pretends that it's reconcilable with the traditional theology, but it's not. So this is how they claim that their, their new theology is not an innovation. This is a quote from Monsignor Rogge. What we call the Paschal Mystery, classic theology called the dogma of the redemption. It's easy to see how the redemption and Paschal Mystery coincide, broadly speaking. (laughs) Broadly speaking. (laughs) Less or more, they're the same, more or less. Right. Okay, but they're not the same. They're not the same. So actually, um, this whole way pre-representing theology... Um, stripping away the traditional language, stripping away the traditional concepts, representing it in new concepts that are more, you know, are, are more accessible to modern man, are more inviting, more enticing, more germane. That's the whole project that Pope Pius XII has already rejected in Humani Generis, if you remember. Yes? Right. And in fact, he, he speaks about this and he links it to doctrinal dogmatic relativism. So... In theology, quote, this is humani generis, some wanted to reduce to a minimum the meaning of dogmas and to free dogma itself from terminology long established in the church and from philosophical concepts held by Catholic teachers to bring about a return in the explanation of Catholic doctrine to the way of speaking used by the Holy Scripture and the fathers of the church. They cherish the hope that when dogma is stripped of these elements, which they hold to be extrinsic to divine revelation, it will compare advantageously to the dogmatic opinions of those who are separated from the unity of the Church, and that in this way they will gradually arrive at mutual assimilation of Catholic dogma and the tenets of the dissidents. So in other words, get back to the Fathers, get back to the Scriptures, get back to the sources, and but kind of for the sake of ecumenism. He carries on... Um, It's evident from what we've already said that such attempts not only lead to what they call dogmatic relativism, but they actually contain it. Mm -hmm. The contempt of doctrine commonly taught and of the terms in which it is expressed, redemption, satisfaction, vicarious, and so on, the contempt of the the doctrine commonly taught and the terms that it is expressed strongly favour it. The things that have been composed through the effort through common effort by Catholic teachers over the course of centuries to bring about some understanding of dogma are based on principles and notions deduced from a true knowledge of created things. Hence, it's not astonishing that some of these notions have not only been used by the ecumenical councils, but even sanctioned by them, so that it's wrong to depart from these terms. Hence, to neglect, to reject, or to devalue so many and such great resources which have been conceived, expressed, and perfected so often 
by the age-old work of men endowed with no common talent and holiness, working under the vigilant supervision of the Holy Magisterium, with the light and the leadership of the Holy Ghost, in order to state the truths of the faith ever more accurately, to do this so that these things may be replaced by conjectural notions and by some formless and unstable tenets of a new philosophy, tenets which, like the flowers in the field, are in existence today and die tomorrow, this is the supreme imprudence and something that would make dogma itself a reed shaken by the wind. And he explicitly addresses applying that new theological project to the redemption. Quote, number 26, Humani Generis. Disregarding the Council of Trent, some pervert the very concept of original sin, along with the concept of sin in general as an offence against God, as well as the idea of satisfaction performed for us by Christ. So he's already cut off this theology of the Paschal Mystery at the knees, and yet here it comes. Mm -hmm. What they have is a whole new way of thinking about sin, what it does to God, what it does to man, and a whole new way of thinking about the consequences of sin, which is our salvation. So, in classic theology, sin is an offence against God. And it's measured by the scale of the injustice done, which is the person who is offended. You know, if I offend a brother, if I offend Father Rutledge, my superior, if I offend Father Fullerton, if I offend the president, if I offend the king, if I offend Almighty God. So much graver. Right. The, the dignity of the person offended. Now, sin right. is an offense that has a, a somewhat infinite measure because an offense against God himself, the infinite God. Man is created for God. And by refusing to give due honor to God, the sinner makes creates an injustice. An injustice, a debt which needs to be paid and sets, himself at, sets his will against God so that in a sense we can say he's, he's the enemy of God. Not because God hates him, God still loves him, God still wants his salvation, God still gives him graces for his salvation, but that he has set his will against God by choosing another last end. That's the sense of enemy. But sure. that's the, it's the language of scripture and it's the language of tradition. And it has to be understood rightly because we don't want to become like God hates me and, and he's going to hit me with a thunderbolt. True, yeah, that would be wrong to take that, right. take right. that from it. But still, it's, it's an act against God, and it has consequences, and it, it requires redress. It recreate, creates a, a debt of justice. And in a certain sense, um, Scripture will even use the language of, of the wrath of God, the anger of God. Now, all of these things have to be understood rightly, and they were so by tradition. So what do we mean by the anger of God? Not that we're not traditional theology is not trying to provide kindling for my God is a cop and he's going to drop a piano on me kind of my own <laughs> personal problems of how I see God. Um, but what do we mean by anger? It's a metaphor. Okay, God doesn't have passions. God doesn't fly into a rage. God doesn't have a body. The second person of the Trinity has a body that's different. But right. he assumed a body. But, but God doesn't have emotions, the things that, like anger, he has love. Um, he rejoices, but he doesn't have anger in, in that strict sense that humans do as undergoing some change, contubation of seeing an evil and being stirred up and flying into a rage and so on. Uh, what do we mean by the anger of God? 
that he there's a similarity of effect. He will act to restore the order of justice, which means he will punish sin. Because he's good and he wants to restore the order of justice, which is a good. So he will act to make it so that bad, that evil, is redressed, is balanced, is punished. Okay. Just like somebody who was justly angry will inflict a just penalty on the guilty party, so Almighty God, who is metaphorically said to be angry, will inflict the penalty that's due to evil in order to restore the order of justice. And what does Chesterton say? Um, Children are innocent and love justice. Adults are corrupt and prefer mercy. (laughs) So when we see it from our side, and we're just like, I've done a ton of terrible things in my life, and this isn't very comforting to me. Well, it's okay, but imagine you've been the victim of some great injustice that will have no um, reward and no, no, no retribution in this life. You know, somebody murdered knowingly and cruelly a family member, for example, and got away with it, scot free. And there's nothing you can do about it, and you don't know who it is, and you know that person's walking free. How much does the soul desire justice then? Because it's a good, you know. So we have to look at it from the other side to see why that makes sense. God doesn't sure. delight in the punishment for the sake of the, the, the pain caused, but he delights in the order of justice, in the restoration of justice, that the, the good be restored. That's what God delights in. So scripture does use that language, but we need to understand it rightly. And of course, the theologians and, the, and, and St. Thomas and everybody have made those precisions already. So the new theology comes along and says, too modern, too, 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 too negative, too dreary, too gloomy. This is the 1960s, okay? Come on. It's like, <laughs> it's a time of hope, you know, and it's a time of progress and positivity and we've got a man on the moon and <laughs> the rest of it. Right. So um, we don't need to be doing all of this medieval stuff anymore. Oh, Lord, I am not worthy stuff anymore. It's like, can we be done with that already? Now we've had the right. revolution of, um, of, you know, the psychotherapeutic revolution, and we've had everything, and we just know we want to be free and positive, and we don't want to think about these negative downer things anymore. So um, let's rethink this whole thing about sin. This is a quote from... Um, Adalbert Mammel, a member of the Concilium that made the new Mass. You know, there's a sort of motif here, no? Right, what does right. he say? The notion of sin is equivocal. Ambiguous would be another way of saying it. The notion of sin is equivocal. It seems to be an injury against God. In which case, reparation would be eminently fitting. Sin is, however not prejudicial at all to the nature of God, which is inaccessible. The only thing it harms is the nature of man. Aha. Sleight of hand. Trickery. Yeah. What's true and what's false there? What's true there is that God 
is not essentially harmed by sin. It's true. Like, the Blessed Trinity is perfectly happy from all eternity. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the, and so on. The circle of, of love in, in the Blessed Trinity. Love and joy and, and happiness. So, mm-hmm. does my sin on earth stop God being essentially happy? No. Does it follow, then, that my sin doesn't deprive God of something that is due to him? No. Again, no. Why? Because God made me for himself. Everything that I have, everything that I am, he gave to me. I am his. I owe him everything. And when I turn my will away from God, who loves me, who made me, for whom I am made, towards some mean and lowly creature, so as to find my satisfaction in that in a disordered way that turns me away from God and his order and his law, then I really do deprive him of the honor which is rightfully his. I have a debt to pay to God what is his due. What is his due? My all. Adoration, obedience, reverence. And so when I deliberately refuse those things to God, I'm refusing him something that is justly his, and I'm creating an injustice. And it doesn't matter that he's supremely happy. I'm still creating an injustice because I'm still depriving him of something which is objectively his. I'm still damaging his right to be honored. I'm still damaging his right to be loved. So you can still offend the honor of God, even though you can't touch his innermost happiness of the Trinity. It'd be like a a tiny child throwing a punch at, at their father who's, you know, huge, strong, and the punch doesn't hurt the father, but the kid's still going to get sent to his room because you, you raised your hand against your father. It's the same sort of thing. Yeah. 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 So that's it. In, in a nutshell, the classic theology, sin is a refusal to honor God. The new theology, sin doesn't hurt God. In the traditional theology, classic theology, um, sin deprives God of the honor that is due to him. And so um, creates that injustice it doesn't harm God intrinsically, but it still deprives him of something that is his due. So there's an injustice against God. In, in, the, in the new theology, sin is only a harm, harming of man. It lowers his dignity, and so forth. it creates wounds in the human society. It creates wounds in the brotherhood of all men, and so on. In the traditional theology, sin creates a debt of justice. I have refused what God should have, and it must be paid. And if it's going to be paid to an equality, we call that satisfaction. Satis, enough. Um, in the new theology, sin doesn't harm God, so therefore it doesn't create an injustice. So therefore, there's no need for satisfaction. And ultimately, if I persevere in sin, if I refuse the grace of God, which is offered to all, everybody has sufficient grace for salvation, that's Catholic. We're not Calvinists who believe in two-way predestination some are made for heaven some are made for hell we don't believe in that so um god gives sufficient grace to everybody to be saved if they correspond but if i persevere in sin and refuse the grace of god then hell is a punishment the ultimate punishment when god has tried and knocked on the door of my heart and it has been refused then he will redress the order of justice with that punishment in the new theology hell is not a punishment it's just self-exclusion from god's love that's the way they present it. Very so, interesting. 
even to take a step back real quick, Father. The, the reason why we're spending so much time talking about sin and the, the new theology on, on sin and the classic explanation of sin is because of the propitiatory nature of the sacrifice. We have to look at how the new theology sees redemption, sin, justice, in order to understand how then it's going to be applied to the new mass. So it's a, it's a new conception of the redemption. And this new conception of the redemption is going to play out in the liturgical reform. It's going, because we already said, they took the, all of the things that signal clearly propitiation out. They minimized them, they rendered them ambiguous. Now we see the more fundamental reason for that is not solely to serve ecumenism, but more baseline because they don't accept the notion of propitiation as defined at Trent. They're like, we need to get away from that. Dead ends of post-Tridentine theories. It's, it's very grave. And so what do they do? Look, if, if, the, if the Mass makes present the saving events, and the saving events are not a sacrifice, then, no, then the Mass doesn't have to be a propitiatory sacrifice anymore. So all of the things which speak of sacrifice clearly go. And it's replaced with this thank sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, which the Protestants in their turn are very happy with. The Protestants are very happy with the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, which is a sacrifice metaphorically. But they're not very happy with a sacrifice which actually makes up for sins here and now by applying the merits of Christ. For them, that's too much. So how does this actually play out in the new Mass? Um, all of the things that indicate... Sorrow for sin, compunction, unworthiness have been minimized. You know, the confitio that the priest makes, or the, in the mediation of all the saints in heaven and so on that we need because we're so unworthy, it's just gone. Pray for me, um, you brothers, to the Lord our God for me. You know, that whole thing, the Virgin Mary, all the holy apostles, Peter and Paul, and so on, it's all gone. We don't need mediators. We're not that unworthy, and let's not be medieval flagellants anymore. Like. In iniquities we implore you, Lord, that with pure minds we may worthily enter into the Holy of Holies through Christ our Lord. Just gone. Um, Oramaste, we implore you, O Lord, by your merits of thy saints whose relics are here, and of all the saints, that thou would deign to forgive me my sins, says the priest. Just gone. So all of this, these prayers to be to be purified from the stains of sin, there's no thought in the, in the New Mass for the unworthiness of the human ministers. And that's a consequence of the fact that sin is not seen as an obstacle to the approval of the sacrifice. Um, and all of the references to the divine justice or any part of the um, prayers that mention the divine justice have been considerably reduced. A few of them in Lent still make reference to the divine justice. It's not completely gone, but it's very much minimized. Um, and the, the clearest difference is the Requiem Mass. For goodness sake, have you ever been to a, a New Rite Funeral Mass? Yeah. It's more or less explicitly a celebration of the life. Right. So white vestments... Um, Really, no emphasis on praying for the soul of the departed to be liberated from purgatory, as if sin didn't carry that consequence of needing to pay the debt in this life or the next. Of course, Christ has has taken away the 
extra-temporal punishment, the eternal punishment, but still we have to pay our debt of temporal punishment, which theology has always affirmed in purgatory, which is a dogma, which many people have forgotten about, because it's not talked about, and this notion of sin has become um, removed from even the liturgical life of the Church, the classic. So in the traditional Mass, what do you have in oh, the diazire, the tract, the offertory prayer? I need to read you these. I need to read you these because they have gone. So this is the tract. Absolve, O Lord, the souls of all the faithful departed from every bond of sin, and by the help of thy grace may they be enabled to escape the avenging judgment and enjoy the bliss of everlasting life. You know the diazire. It's a masterpiece. I mean, even to get rid of that at all. An atheist would have kept that because yeah. <laughs> it's so beautiful and it's a monument. You know, right? it's vandalism. Uh, the, the offertory. Lord Jesus Christ, King of glory, deliver the souls of all the faithful departed from the pains of hell and from the bottomless pit. Deliver them from the lion's mouth that hell swallow them not up, that they fall not into darkness. But let the standard-bearer, Holy Michael, lead them into that holy light, which thou didst promise of old to Abraham and to his seed. We offer to thee, O Lord, sacrifices and prayers. Do thou receive them on the behalf of those souls of whom we make memorial this day. Grant them, O Lord, to pass from death to that life which thou didst promise of old to Abraham and his seed. So, even the Mass of the Precious Blood, which in the traditional 19... If you look at the old rite, 1962 rite of the Feast of the Precious Blood, very, very, very clear about this propitiatory nature of the cross. That Feast of the Precious Blood was first of all removed from the Missal. Then it was put back in as a votive Mass, but it has substantial changes that follow the, the theology of the Paschal Mystery. The whole sense of the Concilium is then to produce a liturgical rite which does not clearly express the Catholic teaching on doctrines that pertain to sin, that pertain to redemption, that pertain to the propitiatory nature of the Mass. And that's a big problem. Problems with the theology of the Paschal Mystery to do with exactly what it makes happen liturgically, that's too complicated to talk about right now. This is already probably way, way more detailed than is needed. But I just wanted to break it down because you pick up that book, right. The Problem of the Liturgical Reform, and most people are going to be like, it seemed very intelligent, but, huh? You know? <laughs> and hopefully I've done some, some sort of pedagogical breakdown of that, I hope. That's what I wanted right. to do. So, Wow, that is fascinating. It, um, th these were things that I had heard before, these, these removal of these prayers, but I, I hadn't connected it to this new theology. And, and, how, and, and it makes sense when you explain it. If you have a new theology, you have to change the Mass, because the Mass is the embodiment of, of theology. Lex orandi, lex credendi. It's, it's, it flows. It's, so it's shocking. they had to have changed it. What's shocking to me is to hear the guys who wrote the new Mass saying those sorts of things so openly. It's unfortunate that these are the terms in which the redemption is presented to many of our contemporaries. Okay, so explain it to them. Teach them that God loves them. Teach them that the anger of God doesn't mean that God hates you. It's a metaphor which expresses something of the reality of what our sin does. It doesn't mean God hates you. It doesn't mean God is a cop. We, all of these things have to be balanced. It's true. Sure. But you don't balance them by just chucking out the old theology that is the church's teaching and making up a whole new thing. 
that project's already been condemned. Why are we doing this? Yeah, that's, that's the question I'm left with too, is why? And I, I've asked this a few times, so why? Well, but we, we know why. We've seen, the prog we've seen the steps that it has taken from the 1300s all the way through. The, the basic answer is going to be humanism. Everything, sin doesn't take away from God. So what's sin to be conceived in reference to? Man. Creation isn't for the benefit of God. Why? Because God is perfectly happy. So who is creation for the benefit of? Man. Everything's going to turn around man. Human dignity. Mm -hmm. The gospel is the revelation of human dignity. God loves us. Why? Because we have a great human dignity. Jesus Christ is the revelation of man to himself. Human dignity. This is kind of naturalism. Right. Father Calderon, in his book Prometheus, which is just being translated into English, is going to explain this very, very, very well. The okay. humanism of Vatican II. And that's his fundamental way of looking at the council. It is a turning towards man. And I think that's the most profound answer. Right. Well, and, and literally, too, with the altar. I mean, not to get too on the nose about it. Yeah. But, but it's... Um, why does it come about? Loss of the sense of the supernatural. L loss of... There's human respect in there. There's pride. There's a kind of intellectual wanting to keep up with the Joneses when the Joneses are off track in scholarship. The end of the day, everybody wants to be liked. But you have to have the confidence. If God reveals something, then it's not only for your good to hold strong in it, it's for the good of the person you're trying to help as well. We, exactly. If we falsify the true nature of man's relationship with God... So that man who is actually in need of the mercy of God, because he really has sinned and really created a debt, is just like we thank you, we count thank you for counting us worthy to stand in your presence and serve you and receive this bread and wine that we've made and aren't we great? You falsified the relation between man and God. And that doesn't actually honor the mercy of God and it doesn't honor the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. They think it does, but it doesn't. So right. Well, Father, thank you. This has been a, a fascinating, deep, but good, uh, but clear. I mean, you made, you made it all very clear. This, there's a lot of information here, but you made it all very clear for us. So I, I appreciate it very much. And uh, the notes that you've passed along to me that, that we're looking at in terms of uh, preparing this episode, um, like all the other ones, we're going to be posting this online. So I'd, I'd recommend to our listeners to go and look at this because there's a lot more that we didn't even cover here. Uh, and then, like you said, we'll link to the book that you mentioned a couple times during this episode as well, in case people want to go even deeper into this. Yeah, no, you should. Um, that That's... For those who are inclined to that sort of reading, go and read it. But just yeah. take it slowly and be patient and <laughs> put it down and go for a walk and, uh, you know, sure. ride your bike when, when your brain starts to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Th enough. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Father. We'll talk to you later. All right, God bless you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 24 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 25, we'll welcome back Father Paul Robinson to discuss the practical matters surrounding the Novus Ordo Mass. We're going to answer questions like, is the Novus Ordo Mass valid? And if it is valid, is it good? Do we have an obligation to attend? Or on the other hand, do we have an obligation not to attend? We'll look at those matters next time. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it, 
And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of $5 or $10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.